Thanks for the reading, Eric. Uh, If you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you along. And if this is your first time, you're coming at the end of a three-week series as we've dug deeper on the doctrine of salvation, looked at some of the Reformation slogans that really shaped uh, the Protestant churches for the last 500 years. So last of those tonight as we think about grace alone from Ephesians chapter 2. So let me pray for us, and um, then we'll have a look at that passage that was just read. Please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your word that you have revealed your Son and revealed all that we might need to know about salvation through your word and through Christ's teaching in particular. Lord, we pray tonight as you might, that you might help us as we uh, look at this well-known passage, that you might Uh, stretch us again, challenge us afresh, even if these are truths perhaps that we have known for some time, that you might help us to see perhaps where there are blind spots, that you might uh, refresh our thinking as we dig in deeper about your grace and how we should respond to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've read uh, Beck Weathers' book, uh, Left for Dead, or seen one of the movie adaptations of the events of his life in 1996. There was the movie Into Thin Air, or more recently in 2015, Everest. It was a really bad year for climbing on Mount Everest in 1996, and Beck Weathers was part of a group of nine or ten mountaineers who were getting very close to the summit of Mount Everest when a huge storm, a blizzard, uh, just descended upon them and really scattered their team, ripping their team to shreds as they lost track of each other in the blinding blizzard. Uh, Several of them would die, uh, but in the wake of things uh, unfolding, teams below in the campsite became aware of the trouble up top, and uh, rescuers were sent up. And a couple of guys actually reached Beck Weathers, but they could see that he was in such a bad state, had collapsed and seemed to be unconscious that they left him for dead, hence the title. Somehow, after 12 hours, face down in the snow, a whole night uh, sleeping in the ice, no coverage, he wakes from this cold-induced coma and stumbles, now blinded um, by the effects of it, stumbles down the hill and somehow miraculously makes it into what was known as Camp 4. The people are shocked as this guy inexplicably walks into camp, but they hold out little hope for him actually surviving beyond that. Such was the damage to him. In talking in his book about how it was that he even got that far, how he'd escaped hypothermia and a murderous storm that had killed eight of his fellow uh, climbers, he said this, I can tell you that some force within me rejected death at the last moment and then guided me, blind and stumbling as I was, quite literally a dead man walking, into camp and the shaky start of my return to life. Well, this sense that he had of himself, of considering himself a dead man walking, conveys at least partially God's view of humanity as a whole, in their natural state, their spiritual standing before him. We're physically alive, as Beck Weathers was at that point, but we're spiritually dead before God, walking dead people. And the big question that we're going to consider this evening is, 
Why are we saved by grace alone? How is it that people dead like that can be given new life? How can a holy God receive and accept somebody back into relationship with him? I guess the question we're asking as we think about grace alone is why is salvation totally God's work and nothing to do with us? Why is it by grace alone? That brings me to the first answer to that question tonight. The first answer is this, because we are spiritually helpless. We're spiritually helpless. Have a look again at verses 1 to 3 that was read for us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Notice here in verse 1, we're spiritually dead before God because of our transgressions and sins. Transgression simply means to cross a boundary, like a trespasser going over somebody's boundary. And to sin means to fall short of a target, to fall short of a standard. But what do these terms mean spiritually? In the context here, they're synonymous. They're ultimately referring to our rejection of God as the rightful ruler over our life the way we ignore his standards. So when we say that we're going to run our life our own way without reference to God, we're rebelling against him and his right to rule over us as our creator. And this rejection of God's rule is what the Bible is ultimately referring to as we talk about sin. See, the specific things we do wrong day by day where we break God's law, where we're proud in our words, where we're thoughtless in our actions, where we lie, where we're selfish, we hurt those around us. These are all symptoms of a root problem within us. You see, committing sinful acts doesn't make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. We are those who have rejected God. And this has weighty consequences, as we see in verse 3. Notice that last part of verse 3, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. See, our rejection of God means that we face God's rightful anger, his judicious anger. Not like a parent who you know, loses it with a child and we think they're acting in a way that's uncontrolled, that it's out of proportion to whatever the child has done. No, God's response is measured and is right because we have denied him who created us to be in a relationship with him. Our actions are an offence before God. He can't simply pass over them. It's a rebellion against him which he must take note of. And so the Bible tells us in this section that God, anger burns against our sin. But you might be thinking, well, look, even if the Bible you know, refers to everybody as sinners, everybody is said to be deserving of his anger, why does that make me spiritually dead before God? You know, why can't I do something? Why am I helpless? Can't I do something in my own strength to get out of my predicament? Why am I said to be dead before him? Isn't there a spark of life within me where I, whereby I can reach out to God, where I can do something to make things right? Well, see, the problem here, what God is telling us in this passage is that our sin separates us from life. 
that we're literally dead before him, unresponsive. We're enslaved, notice, verse 2. Enslaved to our sin, the ways of this world. Unwittingly, we're following the devil. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air that Paul's referring to in verse 2. And so the verdict is we're dead. We're living corpses. There may be physical life, but there is no spiritual life within us. And so we can't do anything to fix it. I don't know if you've um, heard of a fairly remote tribe in the Indonesian um, island of Sulawesi. There's nearly half a million of these people called Tarajans. They live in the highlands, very steep um, territory, skinny little pathways to even get to them. And the vast majority of this group uh, remain influenced by their traditional religion. It's called Alak Todolo, or the way of the ancestors. And for Tarajans, the death of the body isn't the abrupt severing event as we tend to see it in the Western world. They view it as late loved ones being still with them and say they will tend them, keep them at home for weeks, for months after their death, sometimes years, have been treated with formaldehyde and so they're they're not decaying. But the Tarajans will keep their loved ones with them and eventually will bury them. But periodically, even after burial, they're often placed in mausoleums or little tombs. They will bring the bodies out at an annual festival and they will dress them up in fresh clothing and burial shrouds. More than that, they will parade them through the main street of the village. This guy here is uh, well-dressed. Apparently he died about three years before that photo was taken. Now, I I guess it goes without saying, uh, there's a problem here. Um, He still remains unable to walk. He he may be able to be dressed up. They may be able to carry him through the town. But clearly there is no life. The idea that there'll be a response or that something's going to happen and he's going to break into a run down the street is just ludicrous. And yet sometimes the people seem to live in hope in this village that that might happen. I want to say to you, it's just as ludicrous for us to think that there's a spark within us spiritually, that we can do something and reach out to God. Paul's telling us here that we are truly helpless. We are dead. Our problem is that we don't see ourselves that way. We think we can fix it. That we can achieve acceptance with God by doing things. But there's no way that we can respond. If you have seen a corpse or two in front of you rather than on TV, you'll know they don't move. There is no response. There can be no life spiritually for us when we are dead before God. And so we're helpless. If there is to be salvation, it's truly by grace alone. Well, that brings me to a second answer to this question. Why is it that we can only be saved by grace alone? Well, it's because of God's character and his actions that flow from his character. Notice again what is stated in verses 4 to 7. Notice the transformation here. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
I mean, how is it that dead people can be given new life? It's a question that God put before the prophet Ezekiel. If you remember that famous passage in Ezekiel 37, there's this valley of dry bones. Many years before, a whole army of people had died there. And as Ezekiel looks out on all these dry bones on the ground, God says, can these bones have life? Ezekiel's thinking, well, this is a trick question, surely. No, they can't. But thinking, well, it's God. Um, He replies, only you know, God. And of course, that's right. If there is to be life, if life is to be recreated, if new life is being given to something dead, then only God, the creator, can do it. He must recreate those who are dead before him spiritually also. So notice that's what we're told, isn't it? In that first phrase of verse 5, God made us alive. How does that happen? Well, Paul doesn't explain it here, actually, how this new life is imparted, but we know elsewhere in his writings that it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit. This language here, made alive, is the same language of new birth, born again, regeneration, new life being given to something that is dead. Have a look at Titus 3, verses 5 and 6 that will come up on the screen. Here is Paul again writing elsewhere, uh, bringing this understanding to bear for us. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. See, God can give life to dead things through his Spirit. This is the means by which life can be offered. But of course, the basis for such an offer, the basis for God working in somebody's life, for pouring out his spirit, is Christ's death on the cross 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, which is why uh, Paul finishes with that in Titus 3, verse 6 there. It's also why that is the focus in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. It's there at the cross that this insurmountable barrier of sin is just smashed by God through his son's death on our behalf. Our separates us from life, but it's removed. Jesus, our rescuer, who bears our sin, who dies in our place, he stands between us and a holy God the Father, and he bears the punishment that we deserved. And so if we trust in Christ's actions on our behalf, then we can be forgiven by God. We can be given new life spiritually. Christ's work can be applied to us in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. It does beg the question still, why would God bother? Why does God allow his sinless son to be sacrificed on our behalf? It just doesn't seem right. The innocent one is the one that cops it and us, the guilty sinners, go free, can be forgiven. Well, verse 4 is the answer, isn't it? We're told that God does this because of his great love for us. It's because of God's character that he acts in this way. It's his love. It's also his mercy, notice in verse 4. God chooses to act in this way to show great love to us, even though we're undeserving of it. We're only worthy to be objects of wrath in verse 3, but God chooses to show love, show mercy. And so we're not condemned to spiritual death if we place our faith in Jesus. Now, this is amazing grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. That's what that word means. God's undeserved kindness to us. 
I think the problem at this point as we think about this is that it can seep cheap grace to us. We've, we've done nothing. We've contributed nothing. But this is extremely costly to God because he allows his only son to die in our place that we might be offered this freedom, this forgiveness. It costs us nothing but costs God dearly and that is great love. That's why God shows great mercy, verse 4. What's it like to receive life in exchange for death? Well, let me return to that story of Beckweathers. You might have thought from what I relayed earlier, you know, that he saved himself. Somehow he woke up from this coma, face down in the snow, wanders blind down into the camp. Voila, he saved himself. Not at all. In fact, when he gets there, the people are not just shocked that he gets there, but they expect him to die. If he makes it through a second night, which will be in a tent this time, he'll be lucky. He did make it through that night, but those with him knew he had less than 48 hours or he was going to die. The frostbite that he experienced was so bad that unless they got him down to a lower altitude and somebody might fly him out, that was it. But he lived because of a helicopter pilot. The highest altitude rescue in history at that point then took place. They managed to walk him on frozen toes and feet down to the next lower camp and this helicopter pilot put his life at risk and got off there safely and took him to a hospital. But such were his injuries that he had his right arm um, severed between his elbow and his wrist. He lost all his fingers on his left hand. He lost parts of both feet. His nose was also lost through the frostbite. They replaced it with um, parts from his ear and his forehead. I mean, as we consider this man and his exchange of death, seeming certain death for life, it's no exaggeration to say that without this outside intervention, he, re- he literally was a dead man walking as he came into camp. There was no way, humanly speaking, he was going to make it. And yet, people reached down and saved him. And I want to put it to you tonight, there's no exaggeration to say that the exchange that we receive, spiritual life in place of spiritual death, is a far greater exchange. God offers us something even more amazing than that. You might say, well, how can I be sure that this has worked? If I'm to put my whole life upon this truth, to entrust myself, this belief that Christ alone has saved me and there's nothing that I need to do, has it worked? How do I know when I reach judgment day that this has been right, that God's work through Christ was sufficient? Well, the answer to that is in verses 6 and 7. See, Paul makes it very clear there that Christ's work has achieved everything. And the reason you can be certain is that the finish line is already mapped out. He states in verse 6, notice, that those who have been made alive in Christ are seated with Jesus now in heaven. The goal of their salvation has already been achieved, spiritually speaking. We simply await in verse 7 the consummation of that spiritual reality when we will physically experience what we've already received by faith. 
See, the end is so sure that your place in heaven is already arranged. Has Christ's work done all that is necessary? Absolutely, says Paul. It is done and dusted. The finish line is so complete, your place is set. It's been secured. You will enjoy the resurrection life that is already yours by faith in Jesus. And that brings me to our third and final answer. If we ask the question, why is it that we're saved by grace alone, then it's one, because we're helpless. It's two, because of God's character and actions. But it's three, the summary of those two points are that therefore this must be a gift, that there is nothing I can contribute at all. So point three, because salvation is a gift. Have a look again at verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want you to consider in these final verses, what's God's part in salvation here and what's your part? And I want to focus on just the opening phrase and the last phrase of verse 8 to begin with. Have a look at that verse. Notice that it starts with, for it is by grace. God's undeserved favor. His unmerited kindness to you. And so it ends in verse 8 with, well, this is the gift of God. It's just like a birthday present or a Christmas present that's under the tree. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You you just receive it. Somebody went to the trouble and they got that for you and they simply give it to you. But I think our problem, even as we read a passage as clear as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, even as we think about the word gift, we still, because of our culture, want to go back to thinking somehow we've contributed. Did you notice as you walk around a mall at Christmas time and you're hearing all the Christmas songs and jingles, they love to focus on Santa, of course, and you hear that song over and over again, there's Santa, he's um, checking his list twice, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. And you know, if you've been a good boy or a good girl this year, well then you'll get a Christmas present. What? We've just smuggled in works into a gift. Well, it's not really a gift. I've earned my Christmas present. I've been good this year, you see. I've turned out well. I've done the things my mother and father said. And so this is my wages. They better well have that gift for me because I've been nice. And immediately we start to begin to think how somehow we're worthy. Yes, it's God's work, but maybe, you know, I've really earned it in some way. God has acted to save us in Christ, but he's done it in spite of us. We're not deserving of his help. It is an unmerited gift. Let me illustrate that. When I was back in second year at university at Sydney Uni, I was studying economics, and um, I was sick one week, something happened, I missed a lecture. I turned up the following week, two-hour lecture, once a week, and we walk in, sitting up the back, and the first words out of the lecturer's mouth are, everybody bring down their assignments that I handed out last week, you better have done it and hand it in right now, I'm not taking anything after the lecture, it's zero for anyone who tries to give it in after today, come down and place them on the table, because I'll be explaining the answers in this lecture. Well, my jaw must have just dropped. I went pale, thinking, 
Oh, this is a nightmare. Uh, you know, they must have given this assignment out. I wasn't here last week. Nobody's told me. I'm going to get zero for this. And there I am, sort of blindly, just sort of writing down the answers, thinking, good help this is at this point for me, as he wanders through his lecture. And I think, well, all I can do is go and explain my pathetic story afterwards and hope that he'll be kind to me. I was standing outside my office, somebody, his office after the lecture. Somebody else was in there. I don't know if they had the same pathetic story. And I'm thinking, what can I say? You know, abducted by aliens, the dog ate it, running through my usual list. I, I had, I had no, nothing to offer. I had to go in and just tell my story. And I realized there and then, if he said, look, you know, you should have found out. You get zero. I'm not giving you another question. Too bad. That's it. I had no comeback. I wasn't deserving of his kindness. It was my fault. Well, I went in. He seemed to be in a good mood. I explained my pathetic story to him, how I just happened to miss last week's lecture. He listened. And then he said, look, I'll just give you another question, and you can do that and hand it in next week. I'm thinking, here I have a chance for some marks. I deserve zero, but he's showing me grace. And then he's ferreting around in his drawers to find some other question, apparently, and then just stops and says, oh, look, I can't find another question. Just do the one that we all did and hand it in and I'll take some marks off. It's like, really? He's got to be kidding me. I've, I've written down all the answers. I know I can hand in 20 out of 20 next week. Let's see what happens. From memory, he took five marks off. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Got 15 marks. You wonder why there's problems with our banking system. This is how economists... <laughs> get their degrees grace I, I was so undeserving it's almost embarrassing to have received any marks unmerited favor see god doesn't owe you anything god is not compelled to save you it's god's gracious actions towards us in sending jesus to die allowing him to take the consequences of death and hell that we should have received that's grace. We receive help when we don't warrant it. And that means that we have to rely on God's favor. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Paul stresses it, doesn't he, in verse 9. There are no works. How could there be? These are humbling verses. The problem is all ours and the solution is all God's. But we struggle with this. Salvation, grace, alone it's a gift but it ensures doesn't it that we won't boast as verse 9 says imagine that corpse being carried down the street in Sulawesi boasting about how he was walking along the street imagine Beck Weathers boasting about how he saved himself as the helicopter pilot stands beside him at the news brief it'd be abhorrent wouldn't it how could he take credit? No, no, no. The glory is all God's, and that's how God wants it to be. That is all that is right. We've got no self-help rescue story to tell. Look, as we apply these truths further tonight, this means, at least, that I've got to be really careful, if I've come to understand God's grace, that I don't slip back into a works mentality. You know, there are many Christians that start with a very clear understanding of grace. Yes, I've done nothing. God's done it all. 
And then over time, they serve God. They do lots of different things. They go on beach mission. They give money to this charity. They do this, they do that. They're on the roster every week at church. And we begin to think that somehow we're worthy of God's salvation. You know why he saved me? Because I'm really a good person, aren't I? Look at these things that I'm doing for him. And we start slipping into trusting at least partly in ourselves. It's such a danger. It's a reminder here that that is not how it works. You know, my baptism won't save me. My involvement in the Lord's Supper won't save me. And sometimes it's these more subtle religious works that are actually trickier. We think, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not the non-Christian thing of you know, helping the old lady across the street. That won't balance up the good and bad and get me to heaven. No, I know that. But you know I have been baptized and I know none of those things. Whether it's helping the neighbor or whether it's some religious work, these things do not add a jot to our salvation. They can't. Grace alone cuts across all of this. And so if you're ever tempted to trust in those things, what you need to understand as you're doing it is that you are undermining God's grace. You're making Christ's work on the cross a small thing. You're saying it's not enough for me and I need to add to the man that hung on the cross and bled and died and bore my shame. No, we can't do that. To add to grace is to lose grace. There's no such thing as gospel plus. You've lost the gospel at that point. Paul puts it this way elsewhere in Galatians. It's a big struggle in the first century, just as it is 2,000 years later. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, that is through my efforts, my works, then Christ died for nothing. All we need to do is to trust in what God has already done. And that's where it stops. Now, we've got to realize how freeing that is. Billions of people around the world are shackled by the idea that they have to try harder, that they've got to earn their way, climb the ladder. You take all of the major world religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sadly, even branches of Christianity that have mixed in works. And you can describe all of them, characterize all of them by one word, do. It's all about what you do to please or appease God. You're a Muslim, so you've got to do the five pillars of Islam. You've got to tick them off and do them. And perhaps Allah will receive you. But biblical Christianity stands alone. It's got nothing to do with you and what you do, but it's all about what Christ has done. In fact, God's salvation will only be fully understood and received by you once you give up on yourself. Give up on your efforts to rescue yourself. Now, I think at that point, as we understand those truths, we find it difficult at times with where does my living for God even work if I've become a believer? You know, the good things that I do, where do they fit? Well, Paul gives us the answer, doesn't he, in verse 10. 
It's implicit, but as the argument builds through these 10 verses, it's very clear that this is a response to the salvation that we've received by grace. You know, our good works, our good deeds are simply an outflow in response to God's love. God has loved me so much in Christ that I simply want to live for him. I want to give my whole life to his service. And whatever flows out of that day by day, well, that's just the right response. I'm not trying to earn my way for a second. I just want to love God in return. If you want to think about the train analogy, the engine is grace. It's doing all the work. It's got the power. And the carriages that follow behind are the good works. They're just an outflow of grace. They've got no power in themselves. God's love and mercy shown to us should compel us to serve God in this way. Now, I think our struggle, too, is that if we have been a Christian for any length of time, as we think about serving, that it can become tiresome or it can seem hard work. We can feel like we don't want to be on that next roster, that I don't want to keep loving my neighbour, that it's too hard to bear with my brother or my sister who annoys me all the time, or whatever it might be. I think at those moments what we need to do if we're struggling, and maybe you're feeling like that even tonight, what you have to do is go back to the cross. The motivation for living as a Christian is God's grace. We need to go back to the cross and understand Christ's work on our behalf, the grace that has been shown us, because it's only then that our works will flow from the right place. We need to be rightly motivated as we serve God. Well, let me finish. Look, we started with the question, why is it that we are saved by grace alone? I hope you've seen as we've looked through this passage that it's because there's no other way. In your natural state before God, you're helpless. You can't do anything to save yourself, no matter how hard you might try. And because of that, God provides a solution by sending his son. He can bring dead people to life through the regenerating work of his spirit, through the finished payment of his son. And he can breathe new life into you that you might live for him. That is grace. And as a result, it's a gift. There's nothing that needs to be added to this gift. It's been done and we're simply to receive it. And the result is that we have freedom. It's such a wonderful thing to know that you can wake up tomorrow morning and the next and the next for the rest of your life thinking, I don't need to try hard today to earn my way. There's no one I need to impress. I don't need to earn brownie points with God. I've been freed from all of that. I am forgiven. I am his. I can simply live in the light of my Savior's work. That's grace. That is why we are saved by grace alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so clear to us. It's a humbling word because we so feel like we need to contribute. Much of our world is determined to earn its way, that if there is a heaven, they're going to make it on their own. But Lord, no different than Beck Weathers wandering down Mount Everest where dead people walking in our natural state. But we thank you that in your love and mercy you have acted to save us. Help us to cling to the cross alone, to understand that it's your grace that we need and nothing can be added to it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.